When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Oh, hello, everyone. Welcome back to the, this busy study channel on the New Books Network. This is your host, Chuan. Today, I feel very happy to invite Dr. Teresa Mikos to join us to introduce her newest book, Name Captain and the Left-Handed Admirals. So the first thing I want to do today is to invite Dr. Mikos to, jo- uh, to introduce herself to us. Hi, I'm very happy to be here. Um, I'm a professor at George Mason University, and I'm now working at my university's campus in Korea, which is very cool. Um, I started out studying English literature, um, the 18th and 19th century, and I got really interested in the social history of the time. So my first book was about the idea of age um, in the 18th and 19th century, especially the idea of adulthood and how it's different from um, how we think of it today. Uh, and from then, uh, since I was already thinking about social construction of identity, um, I became interested in disability. Okay, thank you so much for your answer. For the next question, I'm wondering why you became interested in the promising field of disability studies. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't have an origin story. <laughs> I know um, uh, some disability historians have... Um, like a moment uh, or an experience that really triggered their their interest. Um, I think uh, I, for a long time, um, felt that uh, people are a mix of uh, different various abilities um, and uh, that idea of just figuring out what an individual can do, can't do, and um, Taking it person by person always made sense for, to me, and that's what one of the things disability studies folks uh, do. Instead of dividing the world between competent people and incompetent people, I mean that that always just seemed like much too rigid to me. Um, and uh, I became interested in the Royal Navy. I, I was working on age, and so I met you know eleven year old midshipmen in the Royal Navy. That was a strange thing for me in the eighteenth century, and then I also kept bumping into um, uh, officers with physical disabilities who I did not expect to see 
doing what they were doing uh, during the, the, you know, the, the wars with France. So that, that became my second project. Thank you so much for answer again. So now let's turn to your book. So for the book, my first question is that I want to invite you to talk about the two key moments in the careers of Nelson Michaels, the Muir, working on Owen Pear and James Alexander Gordon, how they lose the links and how they use the network of personal patronage relationship to win recognition for the loss in the form of promotion to higher command at sea. Right. Yeah, that, that's the key point, that all these officers um, lost an arm or a leg in battle. And instead of being the end of their career as active duty officers, it really gave them a step up. Um, I mean, at that time, there was fierce competition for command. They were, if you've read Jane Austen, <laughs> everybody read Jane Austen knows that there were too many competent officers in too few ships. So it was not a question of scarcity. Um but these were all men who were very competent uh, and who also were well-connected. They had patrons, which is what you needed in the 18th century or in the, in the 19th century. You had to have family connections and, and you know, friends in the sense of, of patrons. Um, so they already were part of that patronage network uh, and they already were out there at sea uh, fighting battles. And they all lost um, an arm or a leg uh, from injuries in battle. The difference is Horatio Nelson lost the battle he lost his arm in. Um, that was one of the few battles he lost, and it was not even an important battle, but it cost him his arm, uh, his right arm. Um, uh, that was a different, but he was already a rear admiral at that time. He was pretty far up um, the, the hierarchy. Um, and he also was Nelson. He was singularly gifted in terms of his charisma and his just like, he was amazing. Um, uh, the other three uh, officers I talk about lost, uh, became amputees earlier in their careers as a lieutenant or as captains. But the key fact about them is they won their battles. So losing an arm in a victory or a leg in a victory was a lot better than losing it in a loss. Um, uh, officers tended to, um, they would write up what they called their services and sufferings. Um, uh, that, that gave them a claim on the admiralty for further command. And their, their friends, their patrons would uh, use this um, um, their, to, to make the case for them. And the big deal for me looking at this is that they were not trying to explain away the fact that, well, I, I only have one arm, but I can still function at sea, or I only have one leg, but I can still function at sea. Um, they were bragging about it. <laughs> I lost my arm or my leg in the service of my country. Um, uh, this is part of my um, um, uh, uh, my accomplishments. This this entitles me to higher consideration. You owe me, <laughs> um, and not just a medal. They liked medals, um, but not just a medal, not just a pension, but what they wanted most, which was the chance to go back to sea and keep fighting and keep rising in um, the, the the scheme of promotion. So um, they made that case themselves in their letters, their patrons used it, um, and um, they got what they wanted. And they went back to sea on these ships, wooden ships, um, and uh, um, continued uh, uh, to succeed. Okay, thank you so much for your answer. For the next question, I want to invite you to talk about the represent representation of empty military heroes. Mm, yeah, yeah. Okay, so as I was saying, 
they represented themselves in their letters, in their, 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 the way they described their um, experiences fighting and living on after losing an arm or a leg. Um, and they described that as making them like more heroic, not less. And I think you can see the same thing in the visual arts. And that's actually where um, my book started was with an article about paintings, portraiture, um, because up to Nelson, um, uh, there was a convention. It was not invariable, but it was a very strong convention that when you painted an amputee uh, officer, um, there was something called the discrete three quarters view. They would turn sideways. Um, so uh, the, 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 the uh, missing arm or leg would not be visible. Um, uh, they would turn sideways or if, if it was an arm or if it was a leg, they would just be painted from the waist up. Um, so uh, the, that loss was not part of their heroic image. It was obscured. Nelson was unusual because his portraits, and there were a lot of portraits <laughs> because he was the most famous you know, um, uh, uh, military hero aside from the Duke of Wellington, um, his portraits were full-on frontal amputee. Uh, there, there was the empty um, uniform sleeve um, pinned up to, to the button on his on his um, uniform jacket, and he confronted you with the loss of his arm. The same way in their letters, these officers confronted people with what they'd lost in service of their country. He's, his Nelson's portrait confronted the viewer with that. He was always painted in his uniform, though. I should stress that except for one, one, one um, private painting um, for his lover, um, Lady Hamilton. Um, it was definitely uh, a picture of a military man um, and the empty sleeve was a, was a uniform. Um, so there was the, the, the missing arm um, and there was the full rank and you know, um, so many medals, <laughs> Nelson had so many medals and he wore them proudly. Um, so like his career was, written on his body and on his, his, his uniform. And he, that's how he presented himself. Um, and after him, uh, the other officers I talk about who lost an arm had themselves painted similarly with, uh, facing forward, um, uh, with the empty part, at least part of the empty, um, sleeve visible, uh, uh, James Alexander Gordon and Watkin Owen Powell, um, uh, lost their leg and that was not, and, and their, their portraits um, after that loss are not, are not full body. You don't see the missing leg. Some officers did include it, but it was, the, but the, the, the stronger representation this kind of distinctive, here's an, here's an amputee tradition is missing an arm, not a leg. And that's how Nelson was represented in um, like the, if you've been to London, <laughs> you look way up at, at the, the, the monument in Nelson's column in Trafalgar Square. He's up there with the, with the empty sleeve. And there was a whole debate about that though, at the time of the monument. Um, some people thought he should be represented in quote, his perfect form um, that uh, um, uh, a, a missing limb was a deformity and should not be included in this portrait of a hero. Uh, I think during the war, um, during their own lifetime, um, these amputee officers, their image as amputee officers was was pretty widely circulated. It was only later that it became more obscured. Thank you so much for your answer again. So for the next question, I'm wondering about um, Samuel Pale and the Gordons lived as suitors, husbands and the fathers, and the conflict between such domestic ideas and the passion in Nielsen's life. Oh yeah, <laughs> that's actually my next project. I'm I'm uh, I'm not writing about Nelson. Um, Nelson is like um, 
you know, one of those like stars that has this huge gravitational pull is, you know, his life was, he was such a, a charismatic figure and such actually a good writer. Um, uh, uh, it's hard to like get away from him, but, um, but I'm writing uh, about um, James Alexander Gordon's life, which is more of a kind of Jane Austen story, not, not the grand passion of um, scandal. That's Nelson's story. Yeah. The other, the other, the other officers, uh, were very much family men. Um, uh, uh, Ellen Gill, other people who've written about the Royal Navy stress that most of, most officers saw their career as patriotic, but also as a way to be professional men and um, uh, support their families. Um, and that's true for, uh, for the other three. Uh, and their letters, especially James Alexander Gordon's letters home, are very much the letters of a family man. He was totally in love with his wife. He was deeply concerned about his children. He writes about governesses like right before battles. I mean, he was, he was a family man. Um, uh, Nelson cared about uh, uh, his extended family, but he was different. Um, uh, He married a widow. He had a stepson. Um, didn't see that much of her. She was a blameless lady. Um, she didn't do anything wrong. Uh, um, but he fell passionately in love with Emma Hamilton, who was a kind of a kind of larger than life figure in her own way. Uh, very, um, very dramatic, very, very sexy. Uh, and, uh, they had a grand passion. Um, and I, I think, Nelson, while he was alive, got away with it because he was Horatio Nelson and England really needed him. Um, so Lady Hamilton was even like able to move around in polite society and like, you know, go to parties um, because she was under his patronage. They had a daughter, Horatia. <laughs> um, uh, after he died, he assumed, you know, he died heroically at the Battle of Trafalgar, you know, saving England from Napoleon. Um, and her welfare and his daughter's welfare were one of his last concerns. He said he was leaving them as a charge to the nation and he thought the nation would take care of them, but the nation didn't. The nation said she was a a bad woman and this was an illegitimate affair um, uh, and and did not provide for her or or the daughter financially at all. So, I mean, during his lifetime, it was a huge conflict. Um, He was the national hero um, and there was a big impulse, I think, then, kind of like now, to see military heroes or like sports heroes, any kind of larger-than-life hero, as a model for youth, um, as an ideal. They should be an ideal figure uh, representing the values of the society for masculinity in all ways. And Nelson was not that. <laughs> he 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 abandoned his wife. Well, well, to be fair, he divided his income. He le- he left her half of his money, which you know. Today, you'd say, okay, that's like a fair divorce. Uh, but at that time, he abandoned his wife um, and ran off with this sexy lady. Um, and nobody really knew what to make of it. Uh, it was a problem. Um, you know, then he died <laughs> gloriously. And everyone could just say, well, she was a demon. <laughs> she enchanted him. She was a sorceress. Uh, she had evil powers. Um, and he was like, you know, in, in, ensnared by her. Um uh, so yeah, it was a big conflict. And the fact that he was older, he was already in his forties. He had already had multiple injuries. He was kind of skinny. Um, he was not the typical leading man, uh, in the grand romance, um, like on the stage at the time or in a novel. Um, 
uh, one of the really unkind things people said was, well, she just must have been after his fame or his money. She couldn't possibly have desired his body. There's no evidence for that at all. Like she kept saying, I'm crazy about you. I desire you. Um, uh, and the fact that she was so into him uh, may have make his own body better. You can look at his letters, how they change when he refers to his body. He first, he talks about my mutilation. Um, and then after a while with Emma Hamilton, he's like, my body is Emma's. My soul is God's. My body is Emma's. Um, yeah. So it's anyway, it's a great, it's a, it's a big romance. It didn't fit um, uh, what a hero should be doing at that time. And there really was no way to reconcile it. Uh, the, the, those, those, the, what, 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 what Nelson did for England and what he did in his private life, was, which was not private because every aspect of his life was, was public, was on display. It didn't, it didn't fit. Thanks so much for your answer again. So for our last question today, I want to invite you to talk about how England changed around the MT officers who lived on through the 19, sorry, 1860s. Yeah, yeah, that's a I, that's a really interesting question for me. Um, they did live a long time. These guys, <laughs> they lived to their seventies, their eighties. Um, they were tough. Um, I think yeah, during the during during the wars with France, they were um, they were important to England's defense. And again, this kind of heroic image of uh, the, uh, of them of as warriors was really dominant. Um, and they also kind of lived in a, a professional bubble. Um, there were not, none of them were the only one. There were like 26 that I found of ma- mainly, mainly officers who lost an arm, a few, um, uh, a few who lost a leg and kept on fighting, but they all, you know, they knew each other. Um, none of them was the only amputee officer with an active career. So um, I don't think it seemed all that strange. I mean, they, they, to them, I mean, they, they knew they were performing, they were presenting themselves all the time. Um, but they were, they were living in a kind of social world where, again, none of them were the only one. Um, as time moved on, uh, um, Victorian ideas of medicine were, you know, this is, it, it's, history of medicine is still being written, but where Victorian ideas of medicine were, I think, more strongly gendered even than earlier ideas were in all kind of wild and crazy ways. Um, and there were, and there were theories about male amputees that they were feminized uh, by the loss of an arm or a leg. Um, that, um, for example, um, what, we, what we now call phantom pain, um, feeling um, you know pain in the missing arm or leg, uh, you know, the, from the you know through your nerves, um, that was like hysteria. <laughs> it was like a female thing. Um, uh, so, I think um, they, they certainly became less visible. Um, uh, as I said, Nelson got, you know, the, the monument in Trafalgar you know, Square got built, but there was even controversy about leaving um, Nelson's empty sleeve there. Um, other rep- representations of these other, other amputee officers kind of became less visible. Um, they were gentlemen. Uh, so I think they were buffered from a lot of, you can read all kinds of horror stories about Victorian medicine, medicine, but it was a complicated time. And I don't know that the kind of the treatment they received, um, became really different or their circle of family and friends really changed much in how they saw them. Um, they were, you know, war heroes, uh, and that was the, the world they lived in, but the, but in the, in the, um, in the wider world, uh, I think 
medicine got a bit worse <laughs> I mean, uh, in terms of, of how, um, especially how amputation was seen as possibly changing identity or messing with your gender status. Um, but they just carried on. <laughs> they, they had their family, they had their friends, um, they had their, their status. Um, and uh, they, their diaries, their letters, kind of note changes that happened around them. But um, they, I don't think their personal lives changed that much. So much for answer again. So at the end of our episode today, I want the director talk to our audience, our listeners. So for any of our listeners, if you take take any interest in either military history, novel history, or American history, I highly recommend you consider buy a copy of Doctor Michael's newest book, Name Captain and Left-Handed Admirals, which is from that book. And as a disability historian. I personally think it's one of the best books about the history of military officers with disability at sea in the 18th and 19th century. So I personally highly recommend you to to read this book and please remember the title. I want to repeat it again. Named Captains and Left-Handed Admirals, the fantastic book. So thank you so much for listening to our, our episode today. Thank you. Thank you. Great talking to you. Thank you.